Hello, welcome back to the Rheumatology.Physio podcast. And we are very lucky this month to be joined by Dr. Sinead Maguire. We talk all about pregnancy outcomes in axial spondyloarthritis. This is a follow-up episode to a previous podcast where we were left with a lot of questions which we didn't really know the answer to uh, regarding preeclampsia, low birth weights and some various other bits and pieces related to what happens to ladies in pregnancy and just after as well as their babies. So fortunately, Dr. Sinead Maguire has done extensive research into this, including systematic reviews and recently a published trial on exactly this subject, pregnancy outcomes. So we delve into those things, including why we previously lacked some research in this area. I want to thank Novartis for sponsoring this podcast. Very grateful to them for sponsoring a series of five podcasts. You can, of course, go back and listen to the two previous ones where we talked about physiotherapy and axial spondyloarthritis and then also investigating axial spondyloarthritis in primary care. Both absolutely brilliant podcasts. This one follows that trend. Really excellent conversation. And I certainly got absolutely loads out of it. A really useful topic for us to be discussing, um, especially as axial spondyloarthritis affects those of younger ages and potentially those who want to have families. Novartis also have further learning resources as well on their learning hub. I'll post a link to that in the show notes of this episode. So for now, I'll leave you to the conversation with Dr. Sinead Maguire. Don't forget to hit subscribe or like or whatever it is that your podcast channel allows you to do. And you can get more episodes from me, especially the last two in this series, which will be recorded soon. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rheumatology Physio podcast. Um, and I'm delighted today to be de- uh, to be joined by Dr. Sinead Maguire. And this is a bit of a follow-up podcast. We remember that we talked about pregnancy and axial spondyloarthritis um, a few months ago, back in 2021, November-ish. And we had some open questions from that. Um, not my area of expertise, I must admit, um, pregnancy. So, um, I was unable to answer all of the questions that were on there and I had a good, some good feedback from that conversation. So I wanted to follow it up. And conveniently, Dr. Maguire has post, uh, published some papers on this reasonably recently um, and also in the past as well. So she's very kindly agreed to come and chat me through and upskill me and hopefully everybody else on what happens to ladies when they have axial spondyloarthritis and become pregnant. Um, so we'll cover some of that today. But there's also some interesting um, thoughts around research into this population group specifically as well. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that. So thank you, um, Sinead, for joining me. First thing first, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, um, what it is you get up to on a day-to-day basis, what your job role is, those kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thanks so much for inviting me on here um, to talk about this topic, something I'm really interested in. I think we need a lot more interest in. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, So I'm a rheumatology specialist registrar or SBR, and I'm training in Ireland. I'm currently working in St. James's Hospital. And for the past three years, I've actually been doing clinical research um, using uh, the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland, or the ASRI. Um, And we've been studying essentially sex differences. So looking at males and females with axial spondyloarthritis or AXPA. Um, and because we know the age of onset of AXPA is, you know, typically in the teens and twenties, um, I think any conversation about women with AXPA would be incomplete if you 
don't consider, um, you know, things such as fertility and pregnancy and things like that. So um, that's, that's where I am. And that's kind of where I'm coming from. Perfect. Yeah, I always remember when you go to rheumatology meetings and, th and things like that, it's, there's a common phrase and it says it affects people of childbearing age, which I find a exactly. really funny descriptor. But then we go on to then sort of ignore that that is the thing where people want to have children, um, which is interesting. Yeah, usually it's discussed kind of in the context of um, prescribing medications and things like that. But, um, you know, there's so many other things to take into account. So um, that's where my research is focused. Yeah, perfect. Great. Um, so my first sort of question really is, is around the research itself. So the paper that we're talking about, you published um, uh, birth outcomes um, in ladies with axial spondyloarthritis um, and their experiences during pregnancy. Um, the one of the things I noticed about the paper is the reasonably small numbers that you were working with. So I think it was 98 uh, women, although there were quite a few pregnancies in that, which I found interesting. Um, but this seems to me, or felt as a read to me, was quite groundbreaking sort of research, or at least certainly an addition to research that I haven't really seen much of before. So what is it about this cohort? And you said we need more attention. What is it about that that means that we just don't have that kind of research yet until you've done it? Yeah, so um, you're right. Our population was quite small. We had 98 women and there was um, 300, I think it was 335 pregnancies in total and two, just almost 280 live births. So a lot of pregnancies, not that many women. Um, and I mean, the problem is, is that this is a really hard population to capture. Um, normally uh, you have, you know, obstetrics and rheumatology are quite separate and these aren't groups that kind of work together on a regular basis. So, um, and in certain cases, um, those departments would actually be geographically in separate areas, especially in Ireland where we have maternity hospitals um, and I know some other countries are the same. So that means that you have Patients with AXPA will have their rheumatology records. And then on a slightly different system, maybe even a different geographical location, you have their obstetric records. And I think there's this perception, um, both coming from patients as well as doctors, that you know, pregnancy isn't something that um, rheumatologists need to be informed of um, in patients with AXPA. And so there's not that kind of communication between departments that you would normally have, say, in someone with complicated lupus. Um, or antiphospholipid syndrome or um, you know, something like that. So because of that, the numbers of women that are captured in studies like this tend to be quite low. Um, and actually we did a systematic review on this topic a couple of years ago, also published in seminars. Um, and this was an issue that was encountered in multiple studies. Um, and the only studies that were able to gather really large numbers um, were typically uh, studies that were focused on um, you know, national insurance claims. Um, or things like that. So it, it's definitely a challenge, but it's not an impossible um, challenge to overcome. So always a hot topic, isn't it? Communication in uh, healthcare where you Absolutely. have this siloing of different departments and people forget that other people exist. Um, and I suppose, you know, you mentioned obviously your, your registrar in rheumatology and we, we were talking about medications affecting um, fertility and those kinds of things as well. So is it, do you think there's a case of three broad rheumatologists going, okay, this lady wants to get pregnant. I've got her onto the correct medication. That's my job done. Um, it's a good question. Um, I think 
maybe as rheumatologists, maybe to advocate to get a little bit more involved in our patients kind of obstetric journey when both when they're planning a family and then during the course of their pregnancy. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's definitely something where we need to kind of challenge, you know, what's the rheumatologist role um, in pregnancy and in family planning. Um, but at, at the same time, like, I think the question around, like the ideas around medication and pregnancy are also really interesting too, because a lot of times what I found from talking to patients um, is that, you know, they will um, want to come off their medications um, when they're planning to become pregnant or once they find out they're pregnant. Um, and the ACR published those amazing reproductive um, guidelines on medication safety for every stage of pregnancy from conception all the way through to lactation. Um, so we have actually quite good evidence on what's safe and what is allowed to be continued and what isn't. But I don't think that message is necessarily getting out to our patients. Um, so because of that, they can have a much rockier course when they're trying to conceive, especially if they have a prolonged period of um, trying to conceive, um, or even once they're pregnant or after they deliver, um, when they're sleep deprived and, you know, trying to look after a newborn and, you know, the time when you least want to have active disease. Um, and all of that, I think, then kind of plays back into why we're seeing this higher rate of complications in this population. So there's so many more questions in here, um, but I think medication, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions around it that we need to kind of focus in um, and try and delve through a little bit better to see, you know, are these issues coming from the doctor side? Are they coming from the patient side? And how do we address those better? Yeah, um, no, exactly. I totally agree. I think that's really interesting. Um, and certainly some work that would be fascinating to read as well. So you mentioned, I just want to zoom in ever so slightly on, on, a, on something you said there. So um, there's obviously a few impacts on the let's use fertility. It's probably not the best word I'm going to pick for the podcast today, but so you mentioned that some of the medications, they directly affect fertility and then, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong there. And then, um, the, also, if you come off your medications, then there's sort of almost an indirect, um, uh, effect on fertility where because of symptoms am I right in saying that so it, it's not so much sorry maybe I misspoke there it's not so much that medications affect fertility but we know from um, kind of studies and inflammatory arthritis as a whole that the better your disease control is um, the uh, the better your general health is and you know the better your general health is the higher chance you have of um, conceiving a healthy pregnancy that's going to result in a live birth so it's not, um, you know, there are medications that we use in rheumatology that are um, not compatible with conception and are more risky. Um, so that's what I meant by that. Sorry if that was unclear. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned um, obviously about if uh, people have to stop their medication, it can affect their general health. And if their uh, inflammatory arthritis, especially their bar, is better controlled, their general health is, is going to be better. Um, and I can really see how that might affect pregnancy as a process. Um, but why do, why do we need specific um, uh, research into AXPAR? Because there's quite a lot in rheumatoid arthritis. So traditionally, obviously more of a female dominated disease process. So there's quite a lot of research yeah. in, in pregnancy outcomes. So how come, what, are there differences that we think or, or what is going on there? Do we, do we need the specific research? So that's a great point. Um, and, you know, RA is a female predominant disease, whereas AXPA for, I mean, 
one of the issues is that axbot for a long time was considered a predominantly male disease. I mean, that's what I was taught in medical school. But the issue is that, you know, our understanding of the epidemiology of axbot has changed quite a lot. So we now know that there's um, that the male to female ratio is actually much more balanced than we previously thought. And I mean, the reason we need specific research into axpa is that you wouldn't lump together, um, say, rheumatoid and lupus. Um, you know, they're both autoimmune conditions, they're both rheumatological disorders, um, and they also act in slightly different ways. They have, you know, we, as far as we know, there's different um, genetic components to it. The disease manifests in different ways. And so for these reasons, um, it's something that we need to look into a little bit closer. Um, there's also, you know, so many things that we don't know um, about AXPA. And so because of that, I think it's really important, um, you know, both for our patients coming in and for us clinicians who are giving advice to patients that we understand, you know, is there a difference in pregnancy outcomes between RA and AXPA? And I mean, one of the areas, I think pregnancy research in AXPA is still very much like in the early stages, even though there has been research on this area, you know, dating as far back as um, 40 years ago. Um, but it's one of the things that has come out um, of research in this area is that disease activity between um, patients with AXPA and those with RA is actually quite different during pregnancy. Um, there's um, a lot of research supporting that um, RA will actually go into remission as pregnancy goes on. And then there's a higher risk of flare in the postpartum period. Um, and the reasons for that are multifactorial, um, whereas it's not as well studied in AXPA, but our um, systematic review from a couple of years ago actually showed that disease activity in AXPA tends to um, increase during pregnancy. And a couple of studies actually suggested that it um, peaks in the second trimester. So disease activity is quite complicated um, and it's quite difficult to study when a woman's pregnant because it can confuse some of the outcomes that we look at. But I think that alone um, you know, gives you hard evidence that these are different disease processes. We do need to consider them differently, um, as well as the fact that I think if I was a patient with AXPA and I was considering pregnancy, I certainly want information on my disease process um, to know, you know, is pregnancy safe? What can I expect? What do I need to look out for? So there's lots of different reasons, um, but it's a very, um, it's a very good question, especially for people who are considering, you know, is this something that needs to be funded further um, or is this something we need to keep looking into? Yeah, and I suppose if you uh, take a very broad view of rheumatoid arthritis and AXPA, then obviously AXPA is really predominantly affecting sort of a lumbar spine, sacroiliac joints. Exactly. A lot of pregnant ladies suffer with similar location issues. So, you know, do you think that um, that can be a confusing factor with with the research as well? That, you know, how do you, how do you dis dis um, separate out from what is, uh, normal pelvic girdle pain versus sort of axbar sacroiliac joint pain, for example. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the main challenges going forward um, in any kind of research looking at disease activity in axbar during pregnancy. Um, I mean, in the general population, pelvic girdle pain is so common. Um, there's even been studies showing that women can develop um, bone marrow edema during um, their pregnancy, which can persist um, for up to six months after birth and then goes away. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's something that needs to be considered. And unfortunately in AXPA, unlike in other um, uh, diseases like SLE, we don't have those kind of um, uh, outcomes that have been adapted for use in pregnancy. We don't have anything mm. that's 
validated for you. So that's, again, another area that really needs further development. But you're right, it's hard to sometimes separate out like, is this a normal phenomenon of pregnancy? Is this their disease activity? Um, and I think that's something that rheumatologists and obstetricians are going to have to work on um, to try and define that better. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think you're going to need some really big numbers to uh, not not AXPAR and AXPAR to try and tease some of those differences out. Yeah, exactly. And just like you said before, like the having small numbers for studies like this is one of the biggest challenges because when you look at, you know, are the differences between um, pregnancies in women with AXPA and women of the general population, are they significant? And a lot of different studies, maybe one or two of the outcomes will reach significance. Um, like in our study, we were able to hit significance for preeclampsia and preterm birth. Um, but a lot of the other um, outcomes, your numbers are too small to be um, to hit that kind of um, significant difference. So um, actually my, what I'm going to do next is um, uh, as part of my fellowship next year, um, I'm going to Toronto and we're actually going to be using a much bigger cohort. Um, and we're going to hopefully have enough power to actually reach significance to try and tease out you know, exactly which outcomes um, or which pregnancy and fetal complications are more common in women with AXPA compared to those of the general population. So um, watch this space. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Okay, I'm already thinking about how long is that going to take and when can I get you back to answer those, some of those questions. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the outcomes that you did find then. So you've mentioned already um, the symptoms tend to be a little bit worse during pregnancy, maybe peaking in the second trimester. Um, you mentioned about rheumatoid arthritis being worse postpartum. Did you find anything similar in AXPAR or? So um, in our study, we didn't ask because this was a retrospective study and we were trying to limit recall bias as much as possible. We only um, asked women about their disease activity during pregnancy and then in the immediate postpartum period. Mm -hmm. So we did find 30%, just over 30% of women reported that their disease activity got worse while they were pregnant. And then nearly 20% of women said that that persisted in the postpartum period. So it's not a huge amount, but at the same time, it's still a significant percentage of women, especially when you consider postpartum period, there's so many other things going on. Um, so again, that's a bit different than some of the research coming out from rheumatoid arthritis, where the majority of women are reporting an improvement in their disease activity. We're not seeing that same kind of pattern um, in women with that spa. So um, I suppose, you know, there's lots of questions like, what can we do about this? What can we do to control disease activity better during pregnancy? Um, what can we do to try and make the postpartum period a bit smoother for these women? Um, and that's something that we have to look at um, down the line. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, fascinating. The, the, the subtle differences, isn't it? Um, if, when you think about it, it's an inflammatory disease. Why are they not all the same? And then you, you zoom yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> And the reason we keep getting, um, you know, all excited about disease activity um, is that there was one, um, it was quite a small study, but there was one Swiss study from 2018 that actually suggested that, you know, higher um, disease activity during pregnancy can be associated with more frequent pregnancy complications. So the two issues kind of go hand in hand. So that's why, you know, I think if we can control one, it might significantly help the others. So trying to break the cycle <laughs> yeah and the things you mentioned as well are obviously significant um differences aren't they i remember reading um, a study of, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis and one of the main uh 
birth complications, so let's say baby complications, was a lower birth weight, um, which on its own, my understanding is, is not overly problematic. Um, but the with your study, you saw more early term births, didn't you? And more preeclampsia, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, and you might say, oh, well, you know, that that's fine. But I mean, these results are similar to what we actually found in our systematic review as well. So, um, and the thing is, you know, having any pregnancy complication has significant implications both for the mother and also for the neonate. So, um, and some of those complications for the neonate can have significant implications for them later in life. So trying to limit the risk of these complications happening um, really is, is crucial, not just for their short-term health, but also for their long-term health. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, really fascinating. Were there, have I missed any complications that we were mentioning there? Um, did I get the main ones, I think? Um, no, those were the main ones. Um, yeah, those were the main complications, though. Perfect. Um, so my next question comes on to what are we sort of going to do with this information, I suppose. So thinking, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, mo my audience is mostly physiotherapists, but it probably applies to um, the rheumatologists seeing these patients as well, and um, anybody else, GPs, et cetera, involved in their care. So, you know, you've got, a, let's, let's set up a little bit of a case scenario. I've got a lady coming into our clinic, whatever clinic it is, she wants to get pregnant. What kind of advice do you think at the moment we should be, because I don't want to go scaring people um, or ladies. I don't. Fair enough. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, with, but also, we've got to be truthful. So, where where do we find that balance at the moment? What would you suggest that we're sort of telling them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I suppose, of course, the most important thing is we're not trying to put women with axe We're not telling them that they can't get pregnant or that it's dangerous to get pregnant. Um, but I suppose the purpose of this research is just trying to figure out how can we make pregnancy safer, both for the mothers and for the neonates. So um, what I would say to these women, I mean, what this research has done for me is that it's made me initiate those conversations around conception and family planning a lot sooner. Um, and so for women coming in who um, right off the bat um, are absolutely saying, I want to start a family, you know, talking about things like medication safety, um, you know, the importance of disease control, um, managing lifestyle factors, all those kinds of things. And some of them our patients might already be very well tuned into and be very aware of. But um, I think it's really important that we don't make those assumptions and that we have that information clearly outlined um, so that it's not a kind of, okay, well, this is what you should do. Good luck. Off you go. Um, you know, I think the clearer we have those messages and the more universal those messages are, the more likely this um, is to filter down to, um, you know, our patient population. Um, so really just starting those conversations sooner, but also when we're monitoring them during the course of their pregnancy, I think seeing them maybe on a more frequent basis from a rheumatologist perspective, being in touch with the obstetrician um, in case there's any concerns over flaring of their disease, or sometimes what happens is that um, our patients will actually go off their medication during their pregnancy and we might not know and then their disease becomes active. So I think establishing those lines of communication um, is also really important. So um, I'm certainly not trying to say from this research that pregnancy isn't safe. Um, I'm just trying to essentially advocate for a safer way to monitor and manage these patients during their pregnancy. Absolutely. And I'm just going to assume a similar answer to, let's say, if, um, let's say a lady comes to see me for physiotherapy and um, you know, she says, 
she's either early stages pregnancy or is thinking of getting pregnant um that would would i suggest you know going that opening that conversation with the rheumatologist asap yeah absolutely and it's actually really interesting when i was doing this research um how many times the question came up, um, oh, I didn't know that was something I should say to the rheumatologist, or I didn't know that was something you'd be interested in. Um, and I've certainly seen it in clinic where we see someone and maybe the disease is really well controlled. We haven't seen them in a year. Um, and they come in and they're like, oh yeah, I just had a baby two months ago. We knew nothing about it. You know, so I, I think, again, just trying to get that message out that, you know, we, we do need to be involved um, during the course of their pregnancy. Um, we especially as a safety net if their disease becomes active. Um, so I think whether that's, you know, a phone call into the clinic or ideally a clinic visit, um, you know, just again, trying to get that message out there. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. One of, the, um, one of the things that I came up on the previous podcast was about um, mo- extra monitoring for the preeclampsia, but also the... Um, and you're gonna to have to forgive me, this is where my obstetrics knowledge starts to fall down, starting some medications to prevent or reduce the, re- the risk of that. Is there any evidence that, that you're aware of that those things are helpful or is it just a, we think this might help, here, here it is? So I saw that question come up um, during the podcast and it wasn't something I knew off the top of my head. I am not obstetric trained, um, but it's a really good question. And as far as I know, I couldn't actually find any hard evidence specifically for women with ASPA saying that they definitely, you know, need or don't need aspirin um, or even addressing the issue of preeclampsia in ASPA. So I mean, there's a lot of research out there about the use of aspirin for um, mitigating the risk of preeclampsia um, in different populations. But as far as I know, there's nothing in ASPA. So, I mean, our study was not the first to show that preeclampsia was um, encountered more frequently. Um, and our, the findings from our systematic review definitely showed that this was a clear outcome that's happening more frequently. So I think maybe looking at how we manage that is going to be the next step going forward. And we're definitely going to need obstetric input um, really to understand uh, kind of pathogenesis of this, um, why this, the pros and cons of starting medications um, and things like that. But unfortunately right now I don't have an answer. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. And I think um, Faye's experience was, was this has flagged up, you're at risk of preeclampsia. Here's yeah. an aspirin. And she went, why? And they didn't really know. Um, yeah. Which, and I wonder which, if maybe she was kind of lumped in as, you know, an inflammatory arthritis as uh, opposed to specifically ASPA. But at the same time, we have evidence that preeclampsia is more frequent, um, more frequently encountered in ASPA. So, you know, I'm, I'm not disagreeing that that, that that was the right thing to do. But um, I just think we need we need stronger evidence um, for when these questions come up and people ask us in clinic, what, what should I do or why was this recommended, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so we've alluded to it a little bit, but and, and you've said specifically where you're off to to do a bit more research on this. What is there any noise about things that are currently being done? Obviously, you're off to Toronto, um, but where do you see this research going next? So the good thing is, is that in the past, I mean, I've been working in this area of research for the past three years, and even in that time, the amount of interest in this area has definitely increased significantly. This topic has come up um, much more frequently, um, both at 
you know, meetings and in conversations. Um, and I think patients are starting to ask about it a lot more as well, which is fantastic. Um, so there's some really, um, I have research planned uh, for Toronto, like I mentioned, um, but I think the area that is really going to take off is um, in the form of national registries. So a national registry essentially is like a database of um, patients with a specific condition. So the one I'm working with is the ASRI. So we capture information on patients with ASPA um, in Ireland. And it's a great source of um, research. And it's also really good for patients to get involved in as well um, because they are obviously given um, access to all the information, um, the research results that come out of this. Um, but one thing that is starting to be collected now is pregnancy data within these registries. So this allows us to collect um, data in much larger numbers than you would normally be able to do in a single study. Um, and there's some great work going on in some of the European registries um, where they have started doing um, prospective pregnancy studies and actually pooling the results of those studies together to try and get bigger numbers um, so that they can hit the statistical power that I was talking about before. So um, we're in the process of trying to change our registry from being retrospective to prospective, so looking forward. Um, and I think that's really going to be exciting and that's gonna be the next place where um, this data goes because like we were saying before, looking at certain things like disease activity, it's really useful to have that information say at each trimester or every step of the way. And if you get that information kind of as um, these events are happening, you'll get more accurate information. You'll also get you know, more, more detailed insight from patients about you know, what's going on at that time or understanding around how their medications are related to, um, to these complications. So I think that's probably the next big step. Um, but the first thing we need to do is to actually establish for specific complications, you know, are these differences significant? And to do that, we need bigger numbers. So that's hopefully what um, the study that I'm doing in Toronto is going to do first. Um, so once we know what the complications are that are more frequently occurring, then we can kind of focus on those in the prospective studies to see what factors are associated with those and how we can mitigate those risks. Brilliant. Sounds excellent. Really exciting. I think um, it's, certainly something that even uh, when, when was I in uh, AXPAR clinic in the NHS was um, I left there in about 2017 and did that for five years or so before that certainly something that was very minimally discussed um, mm. even that reasonably short time ago so it's really great to be seeing that being pushed more by yourself and others and really get some more information because people people ask and then I don't know the answer and I'm not saying that I'm the fount of all knowledge but um, certainly if, if people aren't knowing then it's difficult to manage those things appropriately isn't it um, that's brilliant I'm really delighted this has been a really interesting conversation I'm really um, grateful for you for spending your time with me um, thanks so much for inviting me to do this this was great absolutely no worries and definitely come come back tag me when you're when you've done your next bit of research and we can talk about it further and what you found absolutely just, just before we finish up um do you want to direct anybody to uh follow you social media wise or any resources that you're involved in anything like that yeah so um uh, you can find me on twitter um at sinead and 15 so um you know i always interested to hear about other projects that are going on or, um, you know, collaboration opportunities. So, um, and I try and promote um, all of our research findings that come out um, on there. So, and hopefully there'll be more research um, on this area from me um, in the next few months. So thank you very much. Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.